Welcome back, uh, everybody. And um, we're um, <coughs> going into our second session with uh, Tim Freak, um, who you can see on your screens here. Um, I mentioned Tim during my talk, and, and also the fact that we've done one of his um, What is Life conversations quite recently, when and he put the, the link in the chat box. And he's also done a very interesting conversation with Ian McGilchrist and many other. You're up to 25, Tim. <coughs> so, Tim. Tim refers to himself um, as a stand-up philosopher, um, one, of, one of the ways he describes himself. And he's the author of a great many books and, and has very interesting views, which you'll hear about the evolution of consciousness and the soul um, and provides, I think, a new perspective um, on this, um, which I think you'll be very interested to engage with. Uh, we didn't um, agree entirely on where we were coming from in the conversation, which of course makes for a more interesting conversation. Um, but you'll find what Tim has to say extremely stimulating. So Tim, a warm welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you, David. Thank you. Uh, so, lovely people, thank you for joining me for this presentation. And, and when, I, when I start talking about ideas, the first thing I'm conscious of, paradoxically, is just how mysterious it is, this predicament we're in, that, that we're alive, that we're experiencing this, and just how enormous that mystery is. Uh, and I want to share what I have found the best way to make sense of it so far. And uh, I want to do that in the context of an acknowledgement of the profundity of the mystery. Um, and to invite you to just feel that as we start. So it's been a great conference for me so far because we had uh, David just doing a presentation on Gnosis, which has been probably the focus of most of my life, the experience of Gnosis, and writing books about that in the various spiritual traditions. And then uh, yesterday, Ian, talking about science and spirituality, which is my present infatuation. Um, and that's because I'm looking for an understanding which unites my experience. And some of what I experience is really beautifully exp explained by science, but other things that I experience are beautifully explained by spirituality, and yet they don't talk to each other in the way that I want them to. And so there's a general feeling, I think, amongst people such as ourselves that a new paradigm is needed. And the general consensus is one that I uh, went along with, the alternative consensus, which is the materialist paradigm is, doesn't work, and I don't think it does. I'm not even going to go into that. Um, and that the alternative is really, actually, not really a new paradigm, but to go back to an old one, to see that everything is consciousness. Everything exists within consciousness, and that consciousness, not matter, is the ground of reality and that seems to offer the hope it's a very very common in spiritual philosophy and it offers the hope that uh, it can accommodate spiritual experiences awakening near-death experiences the idea of the immortal soul the synchronicities and dreamlike qualities of life psychic experiences all of that it doesn't rule them out like materialism does and so it's often taken and was taken by me in some ways i think to be the only alternative so uh, this year, uh, I made a little video for the internet, which caused a little bit of a internet stir, um, in which I came out and went, I think I was wrong. And that a concept which is fundamental to 33 of my 35 books uh, is mistaken. And I think it caused a stir because I don't think people do that very often, but I felt I needed to because it was true. Uh, so when I was given the opportunity to speak to yourselves, I thought I would... I'd like to explain why I feel I was wrong about consciousness and then to explore my current understanding of consciousness and, and how we can combine science and spirituality with a new paradigm. So uh, in the spirit of the Gnostics, I think I've always been a bit of a heretic. Uh, I think all those views uh, are heretical in our culture at the moment. Um, uh, but I have to confess today, I feel a bit like a heretic amongst the heretics because um, I want to challenge an idea which I held myself and which I know a lot of people um, looking to combine science and spirituality take as, as central. So when I look at consciousness, it has many meanings. I think Ian said that, but there's two which I'm going to focus on. Um, 
And one is that consciousness is referred to these experiences we're having. We've, this is consciousness. Um, the problem with that is it can just become a synonym, synonym for experience. And unless we can contrast it with the fact that we're receiving information from the world unconsciously as well as consciously. And, and this is certainly how Jung would have understood consciousness. Uh, so a good example of that is in the morning, if you have the alarm clock on, you hear the alarm go off unconsciously, you're asleep, and then, so you register that information unconsciously, and then you become conscious, oh, the, the alarm is ringing, and then that's consciousness. So I'm happy with that meaning of the word consciousness, as long as we can understand it in that way. But I want to focus on another more philosophical meaning, and that's the idea of pure consciousness. That everything exists within pure consciousness. Consciousness is a thing. Uh, you get this idea or, or a presence in um, Indian philosophy, most mystical philosophy actually. Advaita Vedanta has huge influence on me with this. Uh, and in the West you get it with idealism, which is a bad name for the idea, confusing name, if you're not uh, familiar with philosophy, but that's, what it's, that's its idea. Everything exists within consciousness. And that's the idea that I've come to question uh, and have come to the conclusion provisionally, like all my ideas, um, that there is actually no such thing as pure consciousness. It just, it's uh, a reification. It's making a thing from something which is actually an activity. So the idea of pure consciousness and consciousness being the ground has not been making sense to me for a little while, actually. Um, but the moment that it kind of went flip, and I went, no, this isn't, this isn't, this doesn't work. We have to find a different way. Was a, a very embarrassing realization, and I'll share it with you. And I am embarrassed, generally, genuinely, because it was about seeing through an argument that I myself had used, and people in spiritual circles, which is where I've lived my life, use all the time, especially non-dual circles. And here I am, 61, and I finally saw that it was obviously a um, bad argument. Uh, and I'm surprised it took me so long. And like a lot of spiritual stuff that I'm interested in, it's a kind of phenomenological argument. It says, look at your experience. And that's why it's so attractive to me. And the argument goes something like this. Look, have you ever experienced anything that didn't exist in consciousness. Everything is a sensation or an idea in consciousness. So you know from your own immediate experience, forget all the philosophy and clever ideas, you know from your immediate experience that consciousness is the ground. It's obvious. Now, if you say it in that tone of voice, I found it usually was pretty convincing. Um, and it's attractive for that reason. But what's become very, very obvious to me um, is that actually, of course, I say of course, it's not of course, the question itself is conceptually laden. And um, David quoted R.G. Collingwood at the beginning of the uh, conference, saying the answer to any question presupposes whatever the question presupposes. And in that question I asked, or some, anything like it, which you'll hear from non-dual uh, teachers and philosophers in this area all the time, it's, have you experienced anything that didn't exist in consciousness as a sensation or an idea? Well, what's already in there is the idea that there is something called consciousness that things exist within. Is there? Maybe. Maybe not. It's an interpretation. And is what I'm experiencing sensations? in consciousness? Maybe. Or am I actually experiencing the world? Am I conscious of the world? Which is our common sense understanding. So what I want to say here really is that this uh, argument, which was so, is so central to a lot of um, spiritual uh, non-dual uh, teachers, it's really just saying something obvious. All it's really saying is, have you ever had a conscious experience which wasn't a conscious experience? To which, of course, the answer is no. 
And going back to my analogy with the alarm clock, have you had have an experience which didn't arise in consciousness? Well, kind of, yes. Because when you're woken by the alarm clock in the morning, you register it unconsciously and then consciously. So it feels like this just collapsed on me uh, and led me to go, okay, so if it's not given, if, if what's given is this, the experiences we're having ourselves, which can then be interpreted in many different ways. And that's one possibility. One that I was very attracted to, one I now reject. So does idealism or consciousness as the ground, does it have more explanatory power? And can it bring science and spirituality together? I don't think so. I wanna lay out how I've come to think about this uh, for you to consider. I have come to the conclusion that the, the way we can combine science and spirituality into one narrative, into one understanding, is by using what is arguably, I think, the biggest idea that human beings have ever had, certainly one of them, uh, which came up in the, the beginning of the last century. And that's that the universe is not a thing. It's a process. And it's a process of evolution or emergence in which novelty is constantly arising based on what's happened before. And that's got us, as Brian Swim says, from hydrogen to has become you and me having this conversation. It, what a vision that is. And yet everything seems to bear it out right now. And I see it in the moment. And as someone who's very attracted to that from the monological approach, I like that. Because every new moment seems to emerge from the one before. It's always novel. And sometimes that novelty is quite minor, and then sometimes it's quite major, and it's the emergence of something new, something absolutely new. Well, that seems to be what's been happening for 14 billion years. So the underlying hypothesis that I'm exploring, which I just love because of its elegance, that's why it's, it captured me, is that that's what existence is. Existence is the realization of potentiality in ever more emergent ways. That's what it is. Which would mean, and this is the thing that I'm following, that everything has emerged or evolved. Everything. Everything. Everything which has form, everything which has qualities, everything which exists, which stands out, that's what the word means, has evolved. And that's the narrative that can unite everything. Because what I would want to say is, if there's any truth, and I think there really is, to spiritual ideas, like the idea of a soul domain, the duat, the bardos, the whatever you want to call that, if there's truth to psychic experiences, the, the, the dreamlike nature of life, the synchronicities, immortality of the soul, they've all evolved. Because existence is this process of evolving onto ever more emergent levels. So I'll say a little bit about that at the end, but let's just focus on consciousness. So if you look at consciousness, it seems to be an emergent quality of the universe. It, 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 it look, I look at chemicals and I would say they don't seem to have consciousness in any meaningful sense of the word consciousness. But we have consciousness. So somewhere between chemicals and you and me, consciousness has evolved. And, and by consciousness here, I'm kind of meaning something that knows that it's experiencing something or knows that it exists is also inherent, I think, in that idea. But, but perhaps there's a pure consciousness, which is the grand. That's the fundamental idealist idea. But I don't think, I don't think that's the best concept or the best term. Because if everything is evolving, we need a word that describes the simplest foundational quality which has become or evolved into everything else. And I don't think consciousness is parsimonious enough. There's too much there. Consciousness is knowing itself or experiencing something. Or, these are big things. And the word which appeals to me is an old philosophical word from the Greeks, very fond of, and that's the word being. Simply the quality of being of existing at all. And I look around me and I say, what's the one quality that everything's got in common? Even my ideas, even numbers, everything has got in common. 
They exist in their own unique way. They exist. So I want to suggest that we have a quality of being which is taking on ever more emergent qualities. Being is in the process of becoming. It's a very old idea, that one, of course. And that the ground is, as being, is nothing particular. It has no particular qualities. But it has the qualities, it has the quality, but it can take on all those qualities. That's the potentiality to become anything. So the ground of being is unconscious. It's not consciousness, it's unconscious because it's on everything. It is non-dual. It is actually non-dual. And consciousness, I think, in, implies a subject and an object. And bringing in consciousness from nowhere and just plonking it at the beginning doesn't help. Where does it come from? Where, 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 where do these qualities arise from? We, we can't, if anything you put at the beginning, you can't explain. So let's put at the beginning or the ground, let's say, rather than the beginning. The ground needs to be the simplest quality possible. And that seems to be being. So that, you know, if we add, if you put in consciousness, you often get as well, it's like, uh, you see, it, it doesn't just end there. Suddenly consciousness has intentionality and intelligence. It wants to know itself. It's doing something. So now you're basically back with God, the creator, in a different form. And that is a huge thing. You've explained the mystery of existence by a bigger mystery, which is, doesn't really get us anywhere, I don't think. So if you just, if we let go of that idea of consciousness and see it as an emergent property of the universe, a quality, what is it and how did it emerge? And this brings us to the famous hard problem, which is basically how does this conscious experience arise from a piece of meat? And I think actually the hard problem is actually three problems. And I want to deal with the three of them. And the first is, where does subjectivity come from? And then the second is, where does conscious sensation come from? And then the third is, where does the conscious psyche come from? And they're often conflated as if it's one problem. And I don't think it is. And it's good to get that again in experience and use the simple alarm clock analogy again, you know, that, that when you hear the alarm unconsciously, that wakes you up, you have subjectivity, but you're not conscious. Then you hear it as a conscious sensation. Now you have a conscious sensation, and then you think, I must get up, and that's the conscious psyche. And they're different. They're significantly different. So where does subjectivity come from? Well, my thesis here is that the assumption in a spiritual circles that all is one is not quite right. It's more interesting than that. It's not all one, it's the one in relationship with itself. Have a look around you. Everything is one thing in relationship with itself in infinite different ways. Everything has got, everything which is an independent identity has a relationship with the whole. It's the oneness in relationship with itself. And that relationship is subjectivity and objectivity. So as soon as there's qualities, there is subjectivity and objectivity. The one is in relationship to itself. There are two aspects of being. So subjectivity is absolutely fundamental to the nature of existence. It's there right from the beginning. And then if you look at, like we say being is the simplest quality, what is the simplest term we can use to describe the differentiation of being into, into all of the myriad qualities we experience? And I think a very useful word here is information that discriminates being. And the physicist John Wheeler um, famously said, look, we've got to stop thinking in physics, not of the existence of matter being the ground, but of information being the ground. And he talked about the bit, a one or a zero, as the simplest form of information. And I think in, the, in some way he was echoing Lao Tzu and Pythagoras and the Kabbalists in doing that. So I want to use the, word, the term information as a very primal term. But I need to, before I just do this, I need to say something really important. I am not a reductionist. I'm an emergentist. I think new things are emerging and they are just as real as the foundation, just more emergent. It's not like only the base is real. So when I say it's information, all of this is information, I don't mean that we're living in the matrix and that really if you could see what it is, it's just green numbers just floating through the sky. No. 
the information which is arising has become this, this wonderful sensory, imaginal experiences we're having. So in that way of using the word information, one way you can see this is the information has been arising and forming into patterns, forming individual systems, info systems in relationship with each other. That's what the process of becoming is. And that each system is reading the informational ecology in some way, and it, then it's being read. So every system is subjective and objective. And that relationship is what has been evolving. It ha it's not an object that's been evolving, neither it's just the subject that's been evolving. It's the relationship between the subject and the object. I've come across this new word, I don't know where I heard it, but transjective, combining subjective and objective that the evolutionary process isn't an object that became a subject, it's a transjective evolution of subjectivity and objectivity constantly existing together. And that evolutionary process has taken us through that relationship being electrochemical in the early part of the 10 billion years of matter evolving, then with life that becomes a sensory um, relationship. And then with the evolution of psyche, that becomes a conceptual relationship. So that's, it's kind of similar what I'm saying, I think, to panpsychism, although panpsychism, psyche means soul, or the psyche is the idea often that there's soul in everything or consciousness in everything. And I don't think that's the right term for it. It leads to all sorts of confusion. I quite like Whitehead's pan-experientialism, but uh, if you're gonna use that, then you have to have a very, very broad understanding that experience is not conscious. It's just anything that's being read. Um, or you could call it this pan-transjectivism. I don't know what you want to call it, but that's the essential thing I'm exploring. Consciousness is not a miraculously emergent quality that comes from matter, but it's an emergent level of transjectivity. So subjectivity is there the whole way through. Where does conscious sensation come from and what is that? Well, again, I come back to my experience. Have a look for yourself. What I see is and Ian mentioned this in, in, in passing, is that I'm conscious of whatever I pay attention to. And when my consciousness shifts, I pay attention to this, I'm no longer conscious of that. I'm conscious of you, I'm not conscious of my kitchen, which is way over there in the house, I'm in my office. But now I've thought of it, I'm conscious of it. So it seems that there's this constant relationship between all the information I'm receiving, all the sensory information that's coming in, the vast majority of which, thank God, is unconscious. And then I move my attention around and it becomes conscious or something comes in so and grabs my attention and it becomes conscious. So my thesis here is consciousness is paying attention. That's what it is. That's how we experience it. That's what it is. And uh, very briefly, I think what we're looking at is something like this. With the evolution of life comes the evolution of death and the evolution of an agenda, stay alive, eat, don't get eaten, reproduce. Alongside that, each information system, each animate system is receiving the most enormous amount of information there. And the vast majority of it doesn't matter. But some of it really matters to the agenda. And so what evolves is focused subjectivity. What evolves is the ability to take the information that matters and raise it above, as it were, the information which doesn't. And that slow process of learning to do that through the evolution of life has led to this. And that when that subjectivity gets focused, if you like, it comes into high definition, HD. It's HD subjectivity which is this. And if you go right into your subjectivity with meditation, I can't talk about all that now, you can really increase the HD by using the power of the attention, which is consciousness. So what I'm suggesting here is that the reason we don't understand consciousness is not a noun, it's a verb. We've reified a, 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 a verb, which is something we're doing. We're paying attention. It's a way of receiving information subjectively from the world around us. And then what about, um, about the conscious psyche? That's quite different. And to comment on that, I want to first look a little bit deeper at how the universe works. 
Now, many, many years ago, I was very influenced by Rupert Sheldrake, um, whose work I admire immensely, and I've been developing that in my own way about the nature of the past or the presence of the past. Because what strikes me when I look at this moment, firstly, as I've discussed, it's always new. It's always new. And it always contains within it implicitly everything that's ever happened. It arises from the previous moment, which arose from the previous moment, from the previous moment, and everything that's ever happened, me being invited to do this, me learning to speak English, me getting born, you getting born, the arising of the human species, the Big Bang, everything. If that wasn't the way it is, this would not be the way it is. So I don't think the past has gone anywhere. We think of the past as passing. I don't think that's right. I think the past accumulates when everything become information becomes informed it's informed forever and it's not passive it forms what what um, rupert calls the habits of nature which is his take on the laws of nature um, that they're not these things which kind of exist eternally they have evolved because everything has evolved in we get Lee Smolin the physicist has picked up on a different version of this he calls it the principle of precedence which is kind of taking the legal idea the legal laws of and making it like common law because it's happened before it's more likely to happen again and when that's happened enough you get law-like behavior I think another good analogy given the information analogy we've been using in the modern world is algorithms of nature that the past forms the algorithms. If you want a more spiritual version, you could say the universe, that's the wisdom of nature because the universe in this vision is learning from word go. It is a process of learning. It's becoming wise. It isn't intelligent. It's becoming intelligent through experience, just like, and we are that. We are becoming more intelligent, hopefully, through experience. It's learning how to read and to process the information from the informational ecology, depending on the nature of each individual system, which are all embedded within the one. So that there's an infoverse, if you like, the universe is an infoverse, and that includes all that implicit information, as well as what we happen to experience because of our nature explicitly. And I use those words implicit and explicitly because I think there's a resonance here with David Bohm's idea of the implicit and the explicit order. So, given that, the psyche. So, I'm suggesting, look, the, the animals are evolving, um, plants as well, uh, and they're receiving the sensory information on more and more sophisticated ways. But for that to be useful, it needs to be processed. It needs to be understood. Is, as Ian pointed out, you know, even Plants, mimosa plants learn, slime molds learn. I'm saying the whole universe learns, but they clearly are learning and responding very quickly. You can see it happening. So when you learn something, you're comparing something now to the past. So they have a narrative. They're not conscious of any of this, but they have a narrative. They make predictions. So that their algorithms of their nature is processing the information. You know, people often say in the spiritual world, just be here now and look at what's here. If you were actually here now and not processing it, nothing would be here. It would just be colored patches, even probably not that. Everything must be processed on different levels for, until it's remotely useful. So with the emergence of life, you get an expansion of the input data, the sensations, but you get an, also an expansion of the processing algorithms. And that, I think, is the psyche. And just as we, the, the paying attention, the elevating of some information above others led to conscious sensory attention, that makes then possible conscious, being conscious of the processing. So you get an outer consciousness, meaning the organism is conscious of the information coming from the informational ecology, and then there's an inner consciousness meaning consciousness of the processing system within me as in this case or within the info system the information system and prioritizing the information which really matters in both of these has huge evolutionary advantages which is why i suggest bit by bit as these things happen it has occurred and 
if you think about the simplest way that that could happen, uh, I think it's memory. And just imagine, I mean, we, this would be on a very primitive level, but let's just do it in our own experience because it's easier. But just if you look at when you have a, if you, if you imagine an experience you had, if I think about the tree I saw yesterday, it's fundamentally different, the image of the tree to the tree, because the tree is information coming to me from the outside world. And the tree that I'm now looking at is an image of that conscious experience, which is now part of my processing system. So what happens when we make that conscious is the, is the emergence of something utterly new which has happened, of course, throughout the whole process for 14 billion years, but this is a big one. We've got the arising of, of imaginal information, an image, and then the arising of ideas about images or ideas to make conscious the concepts which we were pre previously unconsciously processing the information we were receiving, and then ideas about ideas and ideas about ideas about ideas and blah, 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 the ex exponential evolution of psyche. And that's happening, well, it's happening more than ever right now, and it's happening actually in this very moment as we share this. So what I'm suggesting is that the evolutionary process that has taken us through matter and then life has led to the emergence of a new level of information which is literally transmaterial because it's not made of matter. Have a look. Look at your ideas. My hand is made of matter. The image of my hand is not. My idea, the hand, is not. The, you know, you can hear the funny sounds I'm making with my mouth, but the meaning of the words have no material correlate. They don't exist as movements in the air. They exist in the psyche, which doesn't exist in space. It's a different dimension altogether. And that's an imaginal dimension which has emerged from life. So in spirituality, an idea which I wrote many books on is the idea that life is like a dream because sometimes, damn it, doesn't it feel like it? But what I'm saying now is, oh, a dream level of existence has evolved from the material level of existence. And now they both exist side by side. And the dream level, the psyche, the soul, psyche just means soul, it's a Greek word for soul, mm -hmm. that is not a passive epiphenomenon. That is engaging with this all the time. It's doing it now. It, it, I intend my mouth to move, it moves and says the words. And I, haven't, I wish I had time, more time with you. I'd love to go into it. I can't, obviously, because I'm coming to the end of what I have to say. But central to what I'm exploring is this, and I'll just drop the seed thought in your, in your, in your minds, that there's an ecology of soul, just like there's an ecology of nature, it, there's an ecology of soul, and the ecology of soul is a domain in its own right now. It is evolved into a domain in its own right. That's the Duarte, that's the Bardos, that's the dreaming, that's the spirit realm, that's heaven. That's all, it's a imaginal realm, which we're in right now, and which we can go deeper in through spiritual practices and in death. And the psychic experiences, the dreamlike nature of life, the immortality of the soul, reincarnation, all of these things can be understood in a new way as evolving along with the evolution of this soul or psyche dimension. So to take something Ian said, which I really like also, he talked about the phases of water, you know, you've got the ice and water and steam, and we can talk about the phases of being, perhaps. So the great insight of quantum physics, what Wheeler was talking about is matter isn't the foundation for science. Information is. There's a pre-material level of existence from which comes a, a material level of existence, from which I would claim comes a trans-material level of existence. And the, there's, they're all interacting because all, they all exist. The reductionist idea that the most basic is, is the real one is rubbish. It's all real. It's all the, the becoming. So um, I'd like to just tie that together and then share one more idea with you. 
So what I'm trying to explain or put across here is the idea that the idea that, that everything exists in consciousness, that old idea isn't going back to that old idea is not the only, the only way of uniting science and spirituality. And that it, we might need to actually move forward to a different paradigm altogether. And, and what I'm trying to do is play some small role in, in that happening, a new narrative. And I've been suggesting that the idea of the evolving universe being in the process of becoming the realization of potentiality in ever more emergent ways, that simple idea could be the key. So essentially what I'm doing is I'm saying to science, you need to extend your story. And I'm saying to spirituality, you need to reverse your story. And what I mean by that is this, science has got this evolutionary picture, but it ends with biology. And then it sees the mind and the whole, all of that as a byproduct of biology. And I'm saying, no, see the obvious. That is the most emergent level of reality, of existence. Don't, dis don't, don't miss that. That's where all the most interesting things are happening. That process, which you've beautifully articulated from the Big Bang to the emergence of the psyche, the psyche is, that's when it takes off on a whole new level. And that's what spirituality has been studying all this time. But spirituality, I'm saying, reverse your story. In spirituality, we have this idea fundamentally of the fall, that there's God and then he falls asleep and he dreams and he gets lost, or there's pure consciousness and then it gets identified with fawns and trapped and needs to get out. There's a they're fundamentally negative in the, in the ancient traditions, and I really understand why you'd think that. Now, I can't go into that, but I do. I get it. But I think it's wrong. I think it's much more positive. I think it's not that we've fallen into this and need to get back. It's that everything is emerging from the simplest to the most emergent. And the thing which spirituality is engaged with is literally the most emergent. That's why it has such an, a, a magical, beautiful quality to it. The reductionism is the problem. It's just a different form of reductionism, really, the spiritual thing. You know, it's, it, it's like saying to you, look, you know, you started, you were just a fertilized egg. That's what you really are. I know you've become a body and a psyche and really you're what you were originally. No, you're the whole thing. And the fact that that psyche didn't exist before necessarily the egg has come from it. And I'm talking here about the cosmos here, not just us as individuals, doesn't devalue it at all. It makes it even more miraculous, actually. So my last thought with my last few moments, is this. My uh, preoccupation for nearly all my life has been the experience of gnosis that David talked about. And it is a common claim in uh, that literature and in those circles today that the experience of awakening or enlightenment or gnosis shows you, as I started off, that, that consciousness is the ground. And there's all sorts of other arguments I didn't have time to go into that show that. And I'm saying, I don't think that's right. I think it's an assumption. So I want to just see awakening, gnosis, awakening to oneness from this new perspective and, and share how it looks. From my reading of all the mystical traditions of the world, and I've written books on nearly all of them now, one of the common threads is that the deepest teaching often found in these traditions is your, your, your essential being has no form. And if you've experienced that, you'll know how extraordinary that is. You have no form. It sounds crazy. And yet there it is. I've experienced it. And many, 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 many people. You probably have. So what does that mean from this perspective? Well, in this emergence, we first, we become conscious of being. Or being, the universe, becomes conscious of itself. The whole, uni the whole universe, from what I'm suggesting, is the one in the one in relationship to itself. So we become the one conscious of itself. I mean, right now, I think we are the one universe going, what am I, for instance? That's what we're doing. And it becomes conscious of it first on the level of body, which you can see in the animal world and in us, I'm conscious of being a body. And then that will evolve to the psyche and then conscious of being the psyche, being Tim, my, my identity as an individual. But it doesn't stop there. 
if you keep going, and this is what the deep spiritual practices offer and, and spontaneous awakenings, you can become conscious of something more essential than either of those, which is being itself. And I think what's happening there is that now that we are conscious of the sensory world, now that we're conscious of the psyche, it is possible that we can focus that, that condensed subjectivity onto the quality that everything has, which has no form, which is being itself. And suddenly you're everything, you're everything. Because there is one being and your being is one with it. And that's what the gnosis has always been. But what this way of doing, understanding it does for me was that, you know, when you experience that and there's no self, in fact, if you go into it, and last year I had the biggest experience of it ever in my life, which was a very internal experience and just dissolved into light and there was nothing else. And then I came back. Now, that would have been easy to see that as, oh, Tim's back. If only I could get rid of Tim, the individual's the problem, then it would all be one. But what this new understanding does for me is it goes, no, that's not what happened at all. What happened was I took my focus, my consciousness, and I paid attention to the universality of being so that I disappeared. I wasn't conscious of Tim, just like earlier, I wasn't conscious of the kitchen. It was still there. Tim was still there. In fact, it was only because Tim was there that the universe could have that experience of being the formless oneness through Tim. So Tim was not an impediment. He was the foundation. And the 14 billion years of evolution that had led to Tim having to have this experience wasn't some cosmic error to recover from. It was the continual emergence of greater possibilities until the possibility for me and for you and for all of us to go, oh, I'm the universe, is now right there. So... So I call this philosophy uh, univigilism. And I do that because uh, I want, you know, I'm, I'm, my emphasis still really is on how we can awaken together. And I want it to be a practical support for us making the next evolutionary jump. And the way that I've tried to frame that, just because I couldn't find a word which did it, was that we're evolving from individuals into univigils, where a univigil is an individual conscious of the oneness of the universe, conscious of unity. An individual conscious of unity is a individual. And I think there's good evidence, still small, but that that is increasing fast. Certainly I'm seeing that in the work that I do around the world. So that we are moving into this conscious oneness through the evolution of our individuality, not by erasing it, not by being a problem and that the whole evolutionary process, as Ian said, has been one of increased individuation, leading to something so conscious and individual like us, that we can be conscious that we're one with everything. And just to tie it in with the end of David's presentation, the central thing in the Gnosis is that when that happens, there is this most enormous love. And I think that's just because love is how the oneness feels to the individual, because you are no longer separated off, you are the one in relationship to itself. And the practices that I explore with people in my experiential work is all about us getting to the place where we can see each other as individuals and then also see that we are the universe meeting itself. And what comes from that is this universal benevolence. You just want the best for everything and everyone, and that's the love. And at the end of the day, when I return to the mystery of not knowing what anything is, it's that big, big love and that universal benevolence that makes it all worthwhile. So that's what I wanted to share with you. Thank you so much for your kind attention. Tim, that's absolutely great. Thank you so much. And isn't it interesting that uh, both our 
presentations this morning have ended with love. <laughs> and that is, uh, that's, that suits me just fine. <laughs> <laughs> right, we have a number of hands and I'm sure you haven't been able to know, look at the chat. I haven't but, been um, able to look at the chat, no, not at all. We've had absolutely <laughs> masses and masses of, um, of, of comments come up. Right. Can, oh, I, could I, could I ask you actually now that you could at some point when we've just before you finish this session that you could send me those comments? I'd love to be able to, to have a look at them. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, they do get recorded in, in a text. And Great. Do that. Please do send them to me. So where do you want to go, folks? Well, I think we've got um, 20 minutes before we go into breakout rooms. Isn't that right, right. Andrew? That's right. Yes, about so, 15, 20. So let's have some... Uh, questions and I'm just going through in the way Zoom's put them so perhaps Catherine you might like to start. Um, hi my name hi um, my name's Catherine Barron and I'm an artist and I've, I've come at this from another angle and I just want to share it with you because you're talking about process you're talking about uh, what's fundamental what's instrumental and all of that I ended up doing a theory of creativity and it ended up in a theory of consciousness. Um, and that's why I'm here today. But I'd like to share with you my conclusions on um, making a definition of creativity. And if you wouldn't mind, I'd read it. it, okay. it as long as you can keep it short, Catherine, because okay. I want to be able to respond and then move it'll, on to... It'll be short. So just, you know, just give me the, the essence. Okay, okay. Creativity is the life force of evolving consciousness in space and time. They exist together symbiotically. In other words, you can't have consciousness without creativity or creativity without consciousness. Creativity well, let, let, let's just start there for a second. Is that true, Catherine? Because if, if, you know, if, if consciousness in any real sense of the word is that you recognize that you're experiencing something, we've got 10 billion years before there's any life. And yet the universe was creating the whole time. New things were coming into existence. We got from hydrogen to interstellar systems. Yeah, so there was creative force in operation already. Yes. And I'm saying that you can't have a creative force without consciousness. Oh, and why is that? Um, because it is a force, and a force, uh, it, it's a force that emanates from something. Um, um, it's, and, and, that, and has that something got to be conscious of itself? Um, from my um, research into creativity, I believe that it manifests as a spectrum. Um, one which is drawn and driven, both. So when you're talking about what is fundamental and instrumental, or when you talk about something that is of use, I'm saying that um, creativity as it manifests as a spectrum is oppositional on either ends of that spectrum, where one, it is, it is drawn to all there is, and the other is driven by thought, particularly, which is what we are experiencing. And that's why we have... I believe a situation of imbalance now because that thought is driven towards use and value. Whereas mm. at the opposite end, it, is, it allows all there is possible to be. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say to you that um, uh, that's a good analysis perhaps of, of the way we experience creativity. And I think one of the things that I, in my picture of the evolution of the ever more emergent universe is that one of the big things that's happened is the evolution beyond utility. And the world I live in has not much to do with utility, thank God, and a lot to do with beauty, aesthetics, um, uh, enchantment. Uh, you know, I had an experience just the other day. I live in Somerset. I was walking on the Somerset levels around Glastonbury, and there was a, a, there was a really a moment where I just looked, and the sun was going down on the one horizon, and the moon was coming up on another horizon, and the colours and the, was just exquisite. And in the field in front of me were a whole load of cows, and they didn't give a damn. They were just eating the grass. None of them were going, have you seen that moon? But I was going, wow. So what's happened in that process is that the utility of just keep eating has turned into, forget that, look at the beauty. So that the transjective relationship of the universe to itself is now existing on a level of aesthetics, of beauty, all these other things. So that, that would be my response, Catherine. We, we will have to leave it there, but that's a huge subject. But thank you, that's, your creativity is key. Right, let's go to Irina, thank you. 
Hi. 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 Uh, so if I understood it correctly, and I probably didn't, um, my feeling is that you're talking about evolving consciousness and, and perhaps evolving human evolution, so to speak, and you explain some of the steps of that. Um, my question is whether this is necessarily inconsistent with some sort of external universal consciousness, and by that I mean beyond universal and beyond time. Um, and the reason I ask this is because your concept seems to be very, very human centric. Um, you know, slightly alarmingly so, um, as if we were kind of the center of consciousness, evolution. Um, and I just want, I just feel a bit uncomfortable with that. Okay. So, so, so I, to, uh, you know, make yeah. some observations yeah. on this. So all of that process that I described about the evolution of consciousness and of conscious psyche, I think it happened way before human beings. Way before human beings. What, what human, and I think there is only one universe in relationship to itself. It's the, we are the one in relationship to itself. And God only knows what, you know, it's being exploring itself in a million different ways. And who knows what's happening in other planets. It's a very big universe. But right here, right now, like I could see, the cows are doing cow stuff, which I don't know anything about much. Um, but I was doing human stuff. And what we've specialized in is this most emergent level of psyche, because we've got ideas about ideas. We're discussing philosophy. We are the universe discussing philosophy. They're not. They're the universe doing something else. But we are the universe doing this, or some of us are. Now, that's not human-centric. That's just a description of the way it obviously is. And that, and that, that we can come into that relationship of conscious oneness with the universe and tell each other about it, is also a description of the way it is. So it's not a way of diminishing anything. We're all, it's all one thing, but it's one thing in relationship to itself in a billion different ways. And consciousness obviously has evolved from, well, I say obviously, it seems to me, it has evolved and the psyche, you know, my friend's dog dreams. Well, he has a psyche then, doesn't he? Because he can go off into an imaginary world and think he's chasing things. So the psyche is not just a human experience, definitely. Thank you. Thanks, Irene. Jump to Tuvi. Thank, Thank you very me. much, Tim. Uh, can you hear me? I yes, can. You can. Thank you very much. I agree with several things that you mentioned. I like the term individual, okay, which I really identify with this very much. Because on the one hand, I really, for, and I believe that many people on the SMN uh, can, can define themselves as individual. They, yes. they feel they've got some, some individual, but they feel very strong that they're part of one big uh, universe with consciousness. So that's I agree. I also agree about being. But the, you miss something, I think, very, very important that you didn't mention, which is also missing in science. And this is purpose and intention. Because mm -hmm. my main teacher is, is nature and the universe. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at the universe around me, which is beautiful, as you mentioned. And you can see all the time the evolution. So I agree with you that the evolution is very important. But the point that I want to emphasize, the evolution is not random. There is purpose beyond this. If it was only random, we didn't from, from some, uh, uh, some, some gas become human being and conscious. The only thing that the evolution is because there is also purpose beyond this. Okay, and so I think that's something I think you, you didn't mention at all. You, you, you missed it in some way. I missed it completely. And I didn't mention purpose at all. I know. Right. So the purpose, uh, the purpose, and if the purpose not something fundamental behind this, okay? And the purpose needs some intelligence. So it's not just develop. The purpose was from the beginning all the time, create this evolution. Look, there, there's, a, okay. there's a constant tendency to want to explain things by putting something before them, which explains them, which itself is unexplained. So now there's an intelligence which has purpose. So now we have an explained purpose. We've got a bigger problem, which is where the, where the hell did that come from? How about this? Can experiment with this simple idea, everything is evolved, everything is emergent. That's I agree with you. I agree with everything. Hang, yes. okay, let me answer you. Yes. Let me answer you. Yes. So then purpose itself would be evolving. So what, if, what, what I would suggest is that, that, that what we experience as purpose is not, it's not that the universe has a purpose, it's that what we experience as purpose is actually intrinsic to what it is, because it is the, um, the realization of potentiality on ever more emergent levels. That's what it is. And as it does that, it develops into us consciously. 
doing that as purpose. And then you talked about, about nature and whether that was random. And I don't think the idea that by the time we get certainly to nature, that it's random is inherent in what I'm suggesting. It could be, but I think personally that it isn't because the, the algorithms, the narratives that are forming with the arising of life, I think are feeding back into the creative process so that they're not passive. It's not just like chance, chance, chance. It's actually starting to uh, look for solutions to problems that it's encountering. And, and, and we now have models with computers that can show you how that can arise. You take a simple pattern and let it play out. And the next thing you know, the computer's learning and solving problems. And that seems to be what it's done until it's also then started to doing it consciously. So now we are doing the same thing that nature's been doing for all that time, but we are nature doing it consciously. And that's where I think, and therefore our intentionality and purpose becomes absolutely central to the next phase of evolution. But you, you, so you're very much Ken, looking from human point of view. We're going to stop. Okay. I'm going okay. to jump backwards and forwards. So Ken, okay. trying to get as many questions as possible. Ken? Uh, just a quick one. You talked about the, the, the end, if you like, of the process being love, which is wonderful. And then you talked about at the very beginning, it's pure being with a capital B. But you also talked to the fact that the being was actually relationship. So uh, are you therefore saying that love is at the beginning as well as at the end, because love is a, as a quality of relationship? Um, I'm, I would see it as a beautifully put, Ken, by the way. I, I love that. So I, I think because of the nature of emergence, everything which has come now can be traced back and 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 back into simpler and simpler forms. So what we can experience as probably the deepest relationship I've ever experienced, which is I am Tim in relationship to the universe and I am the universe and that big love um, is inherent in the very first ones, which is one and two or uh, the very first quantum particles. It's not love, but it's the very primal relationship that will become this relationship as it works its way through. It's the potential to become that, and, and, and it is becoming that. Thank you. Yin and yang, Ken, really. That's, that's you know, it's an old idea. Right, I did see that I had Jean had her hand up and also Bernard. Um, do either of you want to speak? Looks like Bernard's trying to speak here. Okay. Um, well, Tim, thank you so much for a very thought-provoking talk. Um, you, you laid a, a lot of emphasis on the importance of unconscious as opposed to conscious. Now, this is, it seems to be missing something. And the reason I say that is as follows. It rather relates to the question which Arena Pasova asked. Uh, you seem to be focusing very much on human consciousness. Now, it seems to me that consciousness has more of a hierarchical nature. I mean, human consciousness is a very special form of consciousness. It's associated with what I term yes. a particular species present. And yes. it seems to me that consciousness can operate on all sorts of different levels in the universe. There could mm -hmm. be a species present of a nanosecond. There could be a species present of a billion years. And consciousness could operate on all those levels. And the point is that it that it seems to me that what is unconscious for one level of the hierarchy may be conscious for another level of the hierarchy. So we may be unconscious, of, it may be in the unconscious, but it might still be in the consciousness of, of yes. some other level. And so it's in trying to sort of put your idea in the context of a hierarchy of consciousness that I feel it's somehow not the full story. Okay, so, so Bernard, what, what you're taught calling consciousness is what I call subjectivity. And I think it's a much better word because mm. consciousness implies I'm conscious or something is conscious. Mm. And then you talked about it being unconscious and on different levels and conscious on different levels. So we've got this dichotomy between a jump that happens that leads to this and not before us. And it's not a human thing, but we are happen to be discussing it and we're experiencing it. So the subjectivity, which you're talking about, absolutely. I think that is there right from the beginning. That is the fundamental nature of the becoming is the one in relationship to itself. Everything is that relationship. Time is that relationship. Space is that relationship. Energy is that relationship. Matter comes into existence through from the quantum world into the material world through that relationship. It's all relational and everything therefore has a relationship. Numbers have relationships. Everything that exists has relationships from those relationships, from that transjective subject object, in multifarious ways, 
will come what I think can legitimately be called consciousness. If you want to use the word consciousness in a, in a different way, that's fine, obviously, I'm not the word police, but we do need to be very clear because otherwise we slip between the meanings. And the next thing we know, we're saying things which aren't true or aren't implied by an argument as if they were. And that's why eventually I've had to ditch the idea and go, being works better. So being becomes subject and object, subject and object become conscious subject and object. Hmm. Okay, thank you. We can discuss later. This is great. We're putting Tim through his paces here. Uh, Jean, did you want to? Yes, I'd like to. Can, I, can you hear me? Yes, yes can. Uh, <clears throat> I can. Hi, I agree with everything you're saying, basically, Tim. I've always felt that this business of consciousness is just trying to bring God in the back door and that, and that our own experience is what's central. And the universe, we are capable of seeing and thinking the whole universe. But of course, I come from an Indian tradition and the Indians, of course, not just the Indians, but all of the spiritual traditions have recognized that there are different levels. You yourself spoke about them, only they've made them a bit more systematic. And in the system that I work with in Vedanta, they had, they had four. And the fourth level was this universal consciousness. But... Um, the way you get from one to the other in that system is by resolving the complementarity of experience and concept. And that's known as samadhi. When you go into that state, you become non-local and you move to a different level and you make that level more set in your own mind and around you. And the person I talk about in my work attained that state but in a, or level. And in addition, there's a fourth, now a fifth level which is talking about what you're talking, that you not only have that cosmic experience, but you also see every single particle of, the, of that cosmos as real, because it is a manifestation of that direct consciousness. And so you can't reject anything because it's all real. And that's a very difficult thing that people are fighting against, especially in India. And I think Americans also would always tell me to shut up because they don't want me to let the world in through the back door. But it's not the world. It's being seen as a manifestation of that totality. I, I love so much of that, Gene. And, and, and I think you're right. There's a real danger about letting God in through the back door. So you end up with God being consciousness, who's at the beginning, creating the universe again. And that's all the problems that science reacted against, which is why it's never, ever actually going to unite science and spirituality. But I'd like to end, if I may, by throwing in one more big idea, which I won't be able to justify. And I'm just going to put it out there and you can think, what, you know, maybe it's nuts. I experience God. I have done since I was a little boy. And I thought I eventually I thought I had to get rid of that and just, you know, get into, but I don't, I experience this benign loving presence, which is greater than me. And my hunch for what it's worth folks is that God isn't at the beginning. God is where it's going. That God is the most emergent quality of the universe, which is the universe conscious of itself as one. And that as we as individuals become conscious of that oneness, we become souls in the communion of God, like cells in the communion of my body. And that the whole universe is actually coming into consciousness of itself, which you could call God. And that therefore, rather than, it's a bit like, you know, Tim started as an egg and then grew into Tim. The universe starts as the Big Bang, but grows into God. And God isn't at the beginning mysteriously, uh, inexplicably any more than Tim was at the beginning. Or more Tim, you know, the, the Tim, this Tim wasn't there at the beginning. That actually the universe is growing into God. Um, and that that is a, also a, a central idea in spirituality, which this view can unite with science. Um, and on that somewhat large idea, um, maybe that maybe that's that maybe I should uh, let you have some lunch. Is that right, Paul? Well, I think actually what's happening, and the apologies, uh, we had a hand up from Peter, but you, such a lovely way of um, uh, sort of finishing this bit of the session perhaps we ought to go into our breakout rooms at this moment ah uh, yes breakout rooms sorry try and hold hold what you had just said um I, I, i'm happy to be here after the breakout rooms if if people want to continue the conversation or even if that's possible with the schedule but so, i certainly i certainly miss the opportunity to sit down and have a drink with you and and talk over <laughs> all these things well yes, we'll, we'll have that later there will be a, a virtual bar at the end of the day fantastic <laughs>
Um, Andrew, do you want to say about breakout rooms? How long have we got? And Certainly, breakout rooms are going to be for 10, <clears throat> 10 minutes from 12.35, which is right now, until um, 12.45 when we'll break for lunch. So the, um, I'm going to open up the rooms now. Um, you'll see a, an invitation on your screen. If you don't wish to go into the, um, the rooms, just don't accept the invitation. So that'll be 10 minutes in there. Um, let's see, here we go. That's opening up now. And um, so go into those and then we'll come back and um, we'll end the call for lunch, for our lunch break. And again, a big thank you to Tim. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Everyone's talking about that.